You are listening to the Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beej, the advancing journeyman developer. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. Hello, Dev Space Huntsville. We're here at Dev Space talking with Ed Charbonneau of the Eat Sleep Code podcast about predicting the future of technology by looking at the industry of tech. We'll delve into the science fiction of the 1950s to look at what they predicted compared to what we have now. From there, we'll discuss what to expect in the future based on those past predictions. Now, we originally recorded this at DevSpace, but since it was lunchtime, the noise level was a bit too loud, and Ed was really kind enough to let us record again and spend another hour or so with us geeking out. Before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? I have been recovering from surgery. I had a... uh inguinal hernia surgery uh this past wednesday and i've pretty much been laid up since then like today was the first day that i went back to work and i say that in air quotes because i actually worked from home just a lot of pain and it's been kind of a slow recovery i mean it's supposed to be um that's pretty much all i've been doing i've been watching uh everybody else actually get to have a life that's about yeah. it. I, I can tell because your your voice is kind of scratchy and stuff. Like yeah. you haven't been doing much because that's usually what happens. Yeah, and I, I have a uh, ice pack on me right now as we're recording because I'm still in quite a bit of pain. So, And by ice pack, he means frozen peas. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ed, how about you? Uh, so I'm trying to get things back in order from a busy trip. Uh, I was recently at DevSpace with you guys, and then as soon as DevSpace was over, I headed straight up I-70 to uh, St. Louis, Missouri, actually a little bit outside in St. Charles for another conference called Dev Up, which is uh, formerly the St. Louis Days of .NET, another amazing conference, and I, I stayed there for a few days, and uh, now I'm getting prepared for yet another conference. Uh, this time in Sofia, Bulgaria, in a couple weeks. So I'm getting all prepped up for that. And that one's called Dev Reach. So I've been to Dev Space, Dev Up, and Dev Reach. And, and uh, after that, it's I think it's Dev Giving and Devmas or something like that. Right? <laughs> <laughs> nice. nice. Bulgaria. I'm kind of jealous of that. I, uh, I, I haven't gotten to go to any out-of-country conferences yet, so that's really cool. Yeah, I'm fortunate if uh, I'm speaking at the conference, and it's uh, it's a beautiful country, and Sofia, uh, the city we're going to be in, has uh, a lot of really cool, rich history. So it'll be an exciting trip and round out the uh, the end of my travels for the year. That's really awesome. So I, I kind of understand the uh, the busyness. My life has been a bit insane lately, too. Yesterday was the first day in probably a month or so that I haven't had to do anything or be anywhere. And I actually skipped out on our writing group to take the day off and sleep in. So uh, this week, uh, getting ready to uh, speak at a local boot camp 
here. It's a brand new called Covalence, and I'm going to be going in there talking. I think I'm going to talk on logging. I haven't decided exactly which talk I'm going to give, but they asked for a more technical one, so that's kind of the direction I'm leaning. Since DevSpace, I have attended another conference as well, Bar Camp, here in Nashville this past weekend. The Junior Developer Toolbox crew, our other, I guess, sibling podcast, were all there. Even Jason drove up from Atlanta to attend his first tech conference. We all got to participate in the Podcast Lounge, which was a really neat idea where we did short interviews for the Bar Camp podcast. Now, just as DevSpace was Will's first time speaking at a conference, BarCamp was my first time speaking at a tech conference. It's a little bit different as the speakers are chosen by popular vote the day of the conference, or they call it an unconference in air quotes. So we didn't actually know who was going to be speaking or when we'd be speaking until that day. Thankfully, my talk was rather popular as uh, by the time I finished, there was standing room only in the room. So that was really cool. But uh, speaking of Bar Camp, they had a really unique use of technology that I'm going to tell you all all about in IOTs. At Barcamp this year, each person's badge had a unique QR code on it that, when scanned by your smartphone, would take you to a voting page. On that page, you were able to vote for the sessions that you wanted to be available at the, quote, unconference. It was a really neat idea. I was able to talk to one of the organizers, John Robinson, about it, and he told me that the sessions are always chosen by popular vote. Over the years, they've had several different ways of assessing the vote. And the great thing about using the QR codes on the badge is that only attendees actually at the conference get to vote on sessions. It's really neat. Uh, while it's not exactly IoT, it is kind of a unique use of technology that I wanted to share with you guys because I thought it was really cool. So, Will, who's talking to us this week? Well, we grabbed a tweet from Dennis Stepp, uh, who is at DevSpace. He says, sporting my newest koozie from at Complete Dev Pod, holding at Horny Goat Brew Company Salted Caramel Brown Ale. It's apparently a hipster developer Monday. <laughs> um, Dennis, we're, we're glad you are enjoying your koozie. We had a little conversation with him on Twitter after posting this, and he said that the beer rated about a four out of five. So uh, we're going to have to try it out. Tonight, we're, uh, well, I should say I'm drinking because Will is on pain medicine and not drinking anything. At least you shouldn't be. I'll fuss at him if he is. I'm drinking... Tennessee Brew Works State Park Blonde Ale. Now, what's really unique about the beer that I'm drinking is it is actually funded by the state of Tennessee. But hey, Dennis, send us a message with your contact information because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you. Guys, if you'd like your very own complete developer water bottle, leave us a review in iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all of our episodes to Facebook, Twitter, Google+, and LinkedIn. We're also on Path and Tumblr. And as of last night, at the encouragement of our Junior Developer Toolbox friends, we have an Instagram. So you can check out complete Complete Developer Podcast on Instagram and all the goofy photos that I'm going to post because Will won't post 
any. Yep. <laughs> so, Ed is a Microsoft MVP and an international speaker, writer, online influencer, a developer advocate for progress, and expert on all things web development. Ed enjoys geeking out to cool new tech, brainstorming about future technology, and admiring great design. So, Ed, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. Right, thanks for taking time again to join us. Although the first question that I like to ask all of our guests is, what got you into development and technology? So, uh, as a lot of us developers, uh, that at least in my travels, I've met quite a few. I've always been excited about video games and technology and I, I played video games ever since I was a little kid and could pick up an Atari controller. And as I got older, older I started playing uh, games on the PC, things like Doom and, and, uh, and Wolfenstein and stuff like that, and, and ended up making levels for Doom and Counter-Strike and other games, and got into some programming stuff uh, through those games and tools. And I uh, went to school uh, for electronics engineering, and got a degree in electronics. I, I thought that was something I would enjoy. Turned out it was more of a hobby than a passion. <laughs> so I, I started using my degree to work at a uh, defense contractor, and I was working in an EEPROM programming department. It was just really super antiquated type of a process. So what I ended up doing is, is writing a piece of software that pretty much put myself out of a job. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> my boss was like, uh, this is really cool. Can, can you do it for this other department? So I went to another department and wrote another app and put myself out of a job again. And I just kept doing that over and over until uh, eventually I became a software developer. And um, now I'm working at Progress as a developer advocate. So I get to build a lot of uh, cool things with new technology and go to conferences and talk about it and host a podcast and do a lot of other fun stuff. That's really awesome. Quick question. Have you played the new Wolfenstein? I have not. I, that's the sad part about uh, how all this came about is I used to be really bananas over video games. And now that I'm a full-time, you know, technology software guy, I, I don't have time to play many video games. So I, I still play some old Counter-Strike here and there, but that's about it. I remember I used to get in a lot of trouble in high school because all I wanted to do was sit and play video games in class when I was bored. And I kept, um, they kept blocking them. So I would get in trouble for hacking the school's computer systems to get to the video games. I don't know who kept putting them or left them on there. Uh, I think it was our sysadmin because I think he liked playing them. <laughs> so, before we get into the fun stuff, tell us a little bit about the podcast you host and what you do there. So, I work for a company called Progress, and developers may know us a little bit better as Telerik. Uh, we build the UI components like Kendo UI and uh, the UI for ASP.NET MVC and those type of things. And uh, one of the really cool things I get to do as part of my job is host a podcast, and it's Unlike what most might think, it's about Telerik products 24-7, and actually it's not. Uh, we have a really good community outreach program uh, in our developer advocacy group, and we're allowed to do some really interesting passion pro projects, uh, things that interest us as developers. Uh, we get to take into the community and, you know, kind of build a community uh, alongside of us. And one of the things I'm able to do is, is host this podcast. And I, I travel quite a bit. and I go to a lot of conferences and I meet a lot of amazing speakers. Uh, some speakers uh, like yourselves, uh, first time 
ever speaking. Uh, they have some really great things to talk about. And then some are, you know, industry vets that you may have heard speaking all over the circuits. And I, I get to interview those folks. Uh, I do about two interviews a month and uh, we talk about anything software development related. So whether it's soft skills or web development, mobile development, uh, HoloLens, IoT, you name it, I get to talk about those things. And I'm really fortunate to have a, a company that supports the community the way they do. That's really cool. Uh, I'm going to have to check that out. That sounds just fascinating. I, I really want to listen to that because right up my alley of things that I would enjoy. So yeah, the, the podcast has been uh, going on for about two years. It's called Eat Sleep Code. And you can find us on SoundCloud. And uh, you can also find us syndicated on Channel 9. Okay. We'll definitely check that out. We'll include a link to that in the show notes for you guys. Um, Jumping on into the fun stuff, because we had this conversation at DevSpace, and it was a lot of fun with a lot of fascinating things in it. You have this whole talk that you give about predicting the future from the past. Kind of what's a quick overview of how that works? So, I'm a big fan of sci-fi. Uh, most of us geeks are, you know, maybe speaking for the crowd here, but uh, I've always been interested in sci-fi stories and, and things like uh, comic books and, uh, you know, goofy, geeky TV shows. And I really enjoy The Twilight Zone. It's, you know, one of those shows that's based in the sci-fi realm, and it's from the 1950s and 60s. And I'm also kind of a history uh, nerd, and I, I like to look into various parts of techno technological history and see what uh, what the technology was like in those eras and, and how that relates to uh, what we have today. And, and when you do that, you can start drawing these parallels between uh, what the technology gap was between, you know, the 50s and today, and what those might those technologies might produce, you know, between today and 50 years from now. So this is kind of a, a talk that came out of a lot of research of looking into the past and seeing what all those things, all those technologies and things were and how they came about and kind of the growing pains along with it. I, I like some, uh, some old sci-fi too. Same here. So I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a big Doctor Who fan, which Will makes fun of me for, so. <laughs> well, the really cool thing about the Twilight Zone is the era that it was in. So in the 1950s, late 50s and early 60s, you know, we were in this era of like space exploration, which is really cool because we were just at the Dev Space Conference, so it's really relatable. But you you had the space race going on between the US and the Soviet Union and they were trying to get you know, a person into space and, and land people on the moon and these sorts of things. Uh, other things that are happening at the time were the first nuclear power plants were coming online. So, like, here you have this era where a lot of things that were typically science fiction were becoming reality. You know, putting a man in space, harnessing the atom, and stuff like that. And when you look back at the 1950s, I, I like to call it when the, when the, the future still looked futuristic. Like, if you look at cars and toys and stuff from back then, they had this really futuristic vibe to them. And you, you kind of don't f have that feeling with, you know, futurism anymore. It's It was kind of special back then because you had this space flight scenario and, like, they were putting wings on everything. Like, even the cars had, like, these really cool tail fins and stuff. And uh, it was just a really neat time to look back upon. 
So, you know, given that, uh, what technologies do you think will affect our futures the most? Uh, so, there, there's three technologies that I believe will, will have a lot of influence in uh, what we do in the future. And I feel like big data, artificial intelligence, and augmented reality are three of the, the main technologies that we are really going to have to focus on. Uh, if we don't, we're going to lose sight of that as developers, and we're not going to be at the, the leading edge of uh, the people in our industry. And another thing that kind of goes along with all this, and I'm going to go I'm going to go back and forth with this Twilight Zone thing because it really plays into all of this really well, uh, is, you know, the Twilight Zone, it helps us uh, set up a frame of reference for time. But it, there was also another interesting part of the show is, even though it was this sci-fi show and it had a lot to do with technology, the actual underlying theme of the show was this human condition. So I'll give you an example of that. One episode, uh, there was this guy that was exiled to um, to a planet in space, and he was all alone on this planet. And uh, there was like a warden that came out, and and the warden had this uh, this feeling that this this guy was innocent. Uh, so the warden felt bad for him being alone, and he brought him this android companion and it looked lifelike it was a female and it was it was there to keep him company and um as the episode progresses he, you know they finally acquit this guy of his crimes and the dilemma that he has is at the end of the show he has to decide whether he wants to return back to earth and leave his companion behind or stay exiled with this this computer android companion All right so he knows it's not human so he has to make this decision if he wants to say, stay alone you know, with a, basically a robot for the rest of his life or return home. So that, that's that human condition that, that we're going to have to deal with uh, with these three technologies. And with that episode, you know, I can't remember the name of the, the robot companion, uh, but for simplicity's sake, we'll call her Alexa. I think that, that sounds pretty <laughs> relatable. Yeah. He ended up actually just destroying this android and returning home. Uh, you know, he had feelings for this android and stuff like that, and it was kind of this this human emotion, like tied to this fake human-like device. Um, so you know, I'm not, not quite is, sure why he destroyed the android instead of just leaving her there alone. I'm not sure if he felt like, uh, you know, she would have these these emotional feelings of being left alone, or maybe he just felt like he didn't want people finding his browser history. Well, I mean, or <laughs> it was a two-year upgrade cycle. You know, it's like typical Android. <laughs> the, new, the new model was yeah, out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so that's that's sort of what I was I was about to ask was, did the android start having feelings for him? Yeah, if I, if you I remember correctly, it was you know very lifelike, and it was enough to where he got emotionally attached to it. And I think we're gonna see a lot of these things that that people might consider creepy coming out of these different technologies, especially the the artificial intelligence realm. Um, and we're gonna have to deal with these things uh, on a I guess a instance by instance basics basis as people and, and try to figure out where where the line has to be drawn where it's not creepy or or what the benefit is uh, to having these creepy um, technologies in our lives get past the uncanny valley basically yeah and there's going to be a lot of different uncanny valley like things that we're going to run into okay well what do you mean by that what kind of different uncanny valleys are are you seeing or do you think we'll we will have to deal with in the future. 
So just as a kind of a brief overview of like a few things, um, we're going to have to decide on how we like uh, our data used and who has permission to use it. Um, we're, we're seeing some of these things happen uh, right now with um, anonymous data and companies that sell it to each other. That's going to be one type of, um, you know, human emotion or human uh, condition that we have to deal with is, is how people use our data. Another thing is how we deal with technologies that persist our personalities. And we see this with Facebook accounts and Twitter accounts for uh, people that have deceased and things like that. Uh, already today, the, those are issues that we have to deal with. And, you know, there's another issue of devices and their interruption in our lives. So we we have things like phones right now where, you know, we're on our phones and, and maybe that's socially acceptable in some situations, but not others. And eventually we're going to have more devices than just our phones. You know, some of these are going to be strapped to our face. Uh, we kind of saw some of this happen with the uh, Google Glass and people being called glass holes and stuff like that. So <laughs> there's all these various human factors that, that come into play. And uh, we can talk a little bit more in depth about those as we go along. You know, uh, when you mentioned that, uh, I was thinking about Will and I had a friend that passed away just this past April. It was rough. He was the same age as us. Um, and uh, his mom, went and shut down all the social media and stuff like that and apparently she didn't do the Facebook correctly didn't I don't know if she was supposed to contact them and tell them but she just deactivated the account and then some upgrade reactivated his account and freaked her out <laughs> Whew, she called me all in a huff asking if I was the one that had reactivated his account and uh, it we eventually figured out that it was um, an update to Facebook uh, she left it up as a tribute to him but it was it was a big to do uh, caused a lot of stress for her and uh, a lot of the members of his family you remember when that happened right will yeah been what a month or two I think. Uh, no, it's, it's October now. That was back in June when, when that actually happened. Okay. Yeah, so there's going to be a lot of unintended consequences and things that happen like that that make us uncomfortable. And uh, I think that type of thing is it's going to get better and worse at the same time. And by that, I mean, you know, there's... There's going to be an effort to try to fix those things, but in, at the same time, we're going to create more unintended consequences with the different technologies and, and uh, the fact that they're getting more advanced. And we're going to see a lot of these, these kind of awkward things you know, pop up and make people uncomfortable and have to deal mm -hmm. with those. Yeah, I will say this uh, on Facebook's behalf. They were really polite about it. Um, we had the same thing with... Uh, Patreon. He was one of our first first supporters of the podcast, um, and one of the first people to jump on Patreon and start uh, donating to us to help you know with the the cost of podcasting. And uh, and we had to I had to get in touch with them at Patreon because they didn't have a way of I guess the way that they had for you to remove someone was to block them. And I was like, I just I'm not personally was not comfortable doing that and so i i emailed them and said hey this is what's going on it's telling me i have to block him to just to where it'll stop trying to bill him and i don't feel comfortable doing that and so they they were really great about it they're like we're sorry we'll we'll take care of this sorry for your loss super great um interaction with them i was really honestly i was really impressed with the way they handled the whole situation so 
But I did want to kind of circle back around. You know, you'd mentioned the the three big areas of technology being big data, artificial intelligence, and augmented reality. And so we we kind of got on a little bit of a rabbit hole there about the human condition. Um, and I want to continue talking about that, but I also want to hit on these areas that are going to affect our futures a lot by talking about their histories. So... Could you give us a little information about the history behind data storage or big data? Sure. So, first of all, you know, big data, and what, what exactly is big data? And, you know, that's the ability for us to uh, store and examine really large data sets. And a lot of times these things, uh, these data sets are used to to relate things uh, with this human behavior in, in our interactions. And, you know, all these technologies about data storage started out of, uh, you know, the 1950s and 60s with the beginning of computing. And, you know, for example, in 1961, if you wanted a hard disk uh, storage for your computing, this hard disk drive would be about 52 inches tall and about 70 inches wide. And the, the platters were about 39 inches in diameter. So these were huge pieces of equipment. And they were so powerful that they actually had to be bolted to the floor into concrete. Hmm. And the reason for that was the, these platters were so large, if you started spinning those platters, the centripetal force would just knock the machine over. Uh, so they had to be screwed in tight. They were huge. A machine with several of these platters could only store like a maximum of about 200 megabytes of data. Uh, and that's, you know, if you've got a really good uh, machine. So if you were able to put together a gigabyte of data back then, it would have cost you something like $3.6 million per gigabyte. So, you know, kind of abstract uh, what what that was like in the past, uh, you know, six, 1960, that's uh, roughly 60 years ago to what we have today. And I, I believe like the latest uh, data storage technology that's um, consumer available now is something like 60 terabytes on a hard drive. I think Seagate puts that out. It's about 60 terabytes on a, on a solid state drive and it measures three and a half inches instead of, you know, several feet. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> and I mean, as far as like a gigabyte storage, I mean, you're going to even, you're going to have a hard time even finding that now. Like that's too right? small. Like it's not, commercially viable yeah, my mom's so laptop has one <laughs> well yeah <laughs> <laughs> so if you price that out though uh comparing it to if you were able to accumulate a gigabyte of data in 1961 uh, would have cost you 3.6 million dollars per gigabyte now that's that storage costs you about three cents per gigabyte so i mean that's a huge jump in technology uh, especially in the terms of cost and storage size uh, i mean it's just it's at a level that that's exponential. So, you know, there's a human condition behind this as well, right? We talked about these human conditions. And one of those things is the more space that we create, the more space we tend to fill, right? Uh, how many of you guys have like a shelf or something in the house? And tell me if you have an empty shelf somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, everybody. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking you, you got half an empty shelf in here, Will. Oh, I do. <laughs> Well, yeah, put yeah. stuff on it. <laughs> yeah, so we I think it's we half have... empty because you've moved stuff. Yeah, there's <laughs> stuff in the floor that needs to be put up there, though. No kidding. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, we have this tendency, like, if we put up a shelf in the garage or something, we're like, okay, we, we need to put something on there. Our tools can go here or whatever can go there. We put a shelf up in the house. It's like, okay, we can put some picture frames here. And uh, those pictures obviously have to have pictures inside of them. And then, you know, we end up filling up that shelf. And then we'll, we fill up our walls. We have to kind of fill the space. And less is, less is more a lot of times. But uh, it's not something that you see really happen in the wild too much. Um, I know around our place, uh, I've hung plenty of stuff in all, all of our living spaces, and it's kind of a routine around here. So the more space we create, the more space we tend to fill, and it's it's uh, it's something that we do digitally as well as we do physically. And uh, there's estimates that are being done, and we I think we've estimated that we're going to store by the year 2020 about 40 zettabytes of data. And 40 zettabytes of data, that's equivalent to 125 million years of video, right? So that's that's a wow. lot of Twilight Zone episodes. So what are we doing with all that data? I mean, that's... Yes, yeah, following that human condition, right, we, we tend to try to fill. And what we're doing is we're creating all of this data out of, you know, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. Everything we, we create is being saved somewhere. And then we're also uploading a lot of sensor data as well. So we have wearable sensor data, IoT, phone data. You know, there's pretty much an infinite list of things that we're, we're adding to this collection of data. And if, if you want to think about how we're going to utilize the data that we collect and, and why we store all of this stuff, uh, we can go back in time even further. So if we go back, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about 1961. If we rewind even further and go back like another 100 years into the 1800s, uh, we had this incident there was a cholera outbreak in 19 or 1854. I know when I say this, everybody's minds are, are going to go to a Game of Thrones, but <laughs> there was a scientist by the name of Jon Snow. Uh, <laughs> I, I know, right? I, I give I gave this talk. I'm not a Game of Thrones uh, watcher. It doesn't mean I, I don't like it. I just haven't got to see it yet. Uh, so, so don't beat me up. if I'm, I'm not saying I, I don't like the show. I just haven't had the opportunity to watch it. I'm sorry, um, I don't watch it either, and they make fun of me for it. So. <laughs> So I'm at a conference and I'm giving this this talk about Jon Snow and all these people are laughing and I'm like, why are they? Why is this so funny? This is a serious uh, thing. We're talking about a cholera outbreak in 1854 and people are laughing. And then after the conference, I, I put two and two together and figured out, oh, there's a character on this show. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I should know better. Uh, I'm a, I'm a geek. I should know better, right? Yeah. So uh, Jon Snow. Uh, he was regarded as the the founding father of epidemiology or the the study of of patterns and causes that affect disease and health. So what he did is uh, there was this outbreak of cholera, and back then they they didn't know uh, what exactly was causing it, and they had this thing called the bad air theory. And their theory back then was that the smell of decay and and uh, human waste and things like that were causing this this foul smell in the air. And this foul smell would make you sick and they're, you know, in turn make you die. Uh, so they, they weren't aware of germ theory and stuff like that yet. And uh, Jon Snow, he's, he kind of had this idea that that was wrong, but he didn't quite know what exactly was the cause. He just thought it wasn't the, the bad air theory. He wasn't subscribing to that. So he set out to prove this wrong. So what he did is he took a map 
and he had this map and he put on a clipboard and he walked around town and he knocked on doors and collected data about uh, who had passed in, in those places. So he would take his clipboard and he'd knock on the door and get a kind of a body count and he'd put like a hash mark on each uh, location on the map. And when he did this, he started to notice a pattern on his map. And there was a brewery down the street where there were no cases of this cholera outbreak or no death. And on the other side of town, there was a water pump. And the closer you got to the water pump, the more people were um, affected by this. So just using, you know, simple deduction, he, he was able to figure out, okay, it has something to do with the water because... The people near the water are getting sick, while the people at the brewery that drink beer all day, um, they, they aren't getting sick. So you could see data being used to kind of figure out these type beer of problems. Beer protects from cholera. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> beer is healthy to drink, uh, at least in 19 or 1854. <laughs> yeah. Sounds, sounds good enough to me. <laughs> well, you know, what do you, what he was, do nothing, and then he knew beer was good for you. There right. you go. Uh, so what he wasn't able to do is exactly determine what was causing the outbreak as far as like germ theory and come up with all that on his own. But what, what he was able to do is, is kind of turn the tide against this bad air theory. And then people could put more research into uh, finding out what the actual real problem was. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think they did a study on this many years later and they determined what, what they, they theorize anyway. What happened is uh, somebody put a dirty diaper uh, into the water supply that was infected with cholera, and then they were pumping this water back into their their homes and using it. So uh, he kind of led to this um, this study, though, of epidemiology and and looking at these problems and, and tracking diseases and, and trying to figure this stuff out. So if we fast forward to today, what we're doing today with our data is very much the same. So the those cell phone records that uh, we mentioned much, much earlier, you know, the cell phone records are actually very helpful in doing uh, something similar. And there's researchers at, at Harvard uh, that are taking cell phone records and they're uh, using all of this, this data that's being collected by our cell phones, especially in Africa. And what Africa has had is this cholera outbreak, ironically, something that we're fighting a couple hundred years ago is still a problem today. And they're using the cell phone data to try to predict where outbreaks like cholera are going to happen. And they're able to study the movement of people and understand their, hmm. their migration patterns and things like that through cell phone data. That kind of gives you a grasp of, you know, these past technologies and, and how they're being used today. That is that is really neat. That um, all this talk about data has me uh, thinking about the second technology you mentioned, which is artificial intelligence. And uh, when are we going to have data from Star Trek? <laughs> or or more recently, I, I did just go see uh, Blade Runner replicants. <laughs> nice. So 
So before we get into this AI discussion, let's clear up what AI actually is, right? So okay. we, we hear the term AI a lot, and um, we, we see movies, these sci-fi movies like The Terminator or uh, TV shows like Star Trek, where we have these uh, very lifelike androids that can think for themselves and kind of this sentient computer uh, that can do anything, right? Just like we can. And the big worry is that, you know, we'll create something that's smarter than us and faster than us and can outthink us, right? The problem is that's not what AI is. Uh, that's actually called artificial general intelligence. So you're, you're building a general intelligence that can solve day-to-day -day problems just like a human being can, uh, where AI is actually something completely different. So AI is actually kind of a uh, top-level term terminology for a lot of different uh, computer algorithms. And it's it kind of encompasses many things. So uh, within the AI realm, you have things like uh, machine learning, which we'll talk a bit about. And uh, we also have things like uh, computer vision, uh, speech recognition, uh, translation between languages. All these things are different forms of artificial intelligence. So again, you have this one-size-fits-all glossary term that everybody puts all of these different types of technologies into and calls AI. But it's not the thing that's going to end humankind. And we'll, we'll get a little bit more into it later, uh, but I, I have a feeling that's, that's not something we should be worried about. All right, so you mentioned machine learning. Can you go into a little more detail there? How that right, applies so to AI and our future? Right, so we talked about like all this data that we're storing, right? Zettabytes of data. So how are we going to parse through zettabytes of data? Um, again, if we compare that to hours of video, it's something like 125 million hours of video. It's, it's more than any one human being can consume in their lifetime. So how do we make sense of all of it, right? Uh, so what we do have inside of this artificial intelligence uh, term is... Uh, a subset of AI, which is machine learning. And machine learning is the use of, or a subfield rather, of uh, this AI that's used to take uh, past experiences and, and past data, and we run some algorithms on those to produce predictions about that data. So when a new instance of this data comes along, uh, we can make a prediction based on it. For an example, you guys both sport some pretty, pretty nice beards, right? So there's a yeah. uh, an, a machine learning algorithm that Microsoft has, and it's part of their uh, cognitive services. And what what you can do is you can feed this AI lots of imagery, and from that imagery you can you can pick out labels or identification markers that uh, you know categorize these photographs and things into something that the machine can understand. And what you can do once you catalog all of these things, you can tell the machine to make a prediction on a new piece of information. So you can feed it lots and lots of imagery and and make this big database, and um, you can give it a new image and you can have it make a prediction based on that image. Now what we we would do in that that loop, I guess you'd call it is um, we would feed the feed the machine this new image and then validate whether it's correct or not. And overdoing that validation, uh, we can create this um, 
this algorithm that can kind of make a prediction and give us a probability on that prediction. So once we've trained the, the machine learning algorithm, we give it this new, new photograph, and it can say whether that photograph has a person in it and whether that person has a beard or not. And what it will give us along with that prediction is it will it'll give us a probability. So you might give it a picture and it says, yes, there's a, a man in the picture and he has a beard and it's 78% uh, probability that, that it's correct. So what that enables us developers to do is then say, okay, what are the thresholds of that prediction that we want to act upon? You know, maybe if this is something like uh, an adult filter you know, it's filtering adult photographs from a, a user uh, uploaded, upload mechanism on our website, right? Where users can supply content, we want to make sure that uh, there's not any adult uh, type of uh, data getting into the system. So it can, it can give us uh, the ability to say, okay, if it's over 80% probability that, that this is an adult photograph, uh, we can discard it. If it's 50%, maybe we'll send an email to somebody and let them decide whether it can go up on the website or not. And then if it's you know, less than 50%, it's in a safe range where we can allow that just to automatically be posted online. So that's how machine learning kind of operates, as it gives us these predictions and probabilities that us developers can utilize and create some really interesting programs with. That's, that's sort of how humans work, too, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's very familiar to the way it, we operate, and of course we created it, so yeah. uh, we kind of mirror that, that type of behavior in our uh, machines as well. And what's really interesting about all this stuff that we're talking about today is that it actually originated in the 1950s. I mean, that is of, really cool. You think of all these really high-tech things that are coming out, and the ideas behind them uh, were all just generated in that same uh, time frame uh, that I was talking about earlier, where we have uh, you know, the harnessing of the atom and, and computing is starting to take off. Uh, so, uh, in 1950, um, Alan Turing, uh, he proposed the Turing test, which is uh, a test to try to determine uh, machines' intelligence, see if it can uh, be mistaken as a human being. And then in 1956, we had a, a Dartmouth conference, and this was considered the birth of AI. So, 1956 is the the uh the time where ai was actually conceived and it was at this dartmouth conference they got some of the the biggest minds together in computer science and put them all in a room and they they hashed out a lot of these um uh algorithms that we actually use today uh you know things that resulted in like reasoning as search natural language micro worlds things like that you know natural language is is something we see a lot of yeah if you've ever used siri this is what natural language is uh, this is something that came out of the 1956 dartmouth conference uh, so the ideas behind siri and cortana and all that stuff they're they're actually pretty pretty old hat <laughs> it's just really neat to think that some of the really cool technologies that we're seeing come about today the the things that when I was a kid, I considered science fiction were actually originally thought up when my dad was a kid. Right. Like, it's just, it's a, it's a kind of like mind blower to think that, you know, a generation back, 
was when they first started talking about these ideas. When I was a kid, it was, hey, we're going to have this in the future, and now we have it. Yeah. And, and the other thing, too, is like, what's what are we talking about now that's, you know, like our grandkids are going to have? Yeah. Yeah, there's there's a lot of really cool stuff that that could come out uh, of this. So I talked a little bit about um, you know not worrying about this Terminator type scenario where where the computers get more advanced than us. What what I what I do want to hit on a little bit is this notion that I'm not so worried about this um, artificial general intelligence that's going to take over uh, because we have bigger fish to fry, right? We have some unintended consequences, I think, that we're going to have to deal with in the short term. And one of those things is that there, there's actually some research being done to predict where terrorists can attack or are going to attack next. So they're taking in, in data, uh, like things they call chatter, you know, online chatter, and they're also taking into account uh, previous pro- you know, attacks and, and where things have happened. And they're, they're trying to feed this into an algorithm to try to predict uh, where a new attack might occur. Nothing wrong with that, per se. But then you also have research being done on autonomizing weapons, right? You're, you're taking things like drones and uh, giving them this, this algorithm that allows them to possibly fire on their own. What, what worries me more than this Terminator-like thing is what happens if we start mixing these things together that can predict uh, where they, a potential problem is and then uh, potentially fire upon that thing. Uh, we, we've seen some unrest here, you know, even in the United States in the last uh, year where uh, crowds have gotten out of control and, and there's been issues. Uh, what are the checks and balances going to going to need to be with these things that they don't see uh, our own soil as this, uh, this issue that needs to be taken care of? Uh, I think we have more, more problem there than this, this artificial general intelligence, like a Terminator that's going to run around and be smarter than us. That makes a lot of sense because, I mean, how many times during the Cold War did we almost face nuclear disaster? I read not too long ago about uh, some Russian soldiers that their equipment, their new equipment told them that America had fired on Russia and their orders were when they see that America had fired to return like nuclear strike back and if they had not had the human i'm not going to do this because i think the system might be wrong we would have the world probably would have ended before any of us were born yeah absolutely like it's the these unintended consequences that that i fear more um i'll give you one more example real quick uh target uh the the big box store had an issue um where there was a dad that uh, went into the mailbox and he he got a bunch of mail uh, that had his daughter's name on it. And one of the pieces of mail from Target uh, was advertising baby items to the daughter. Yeah, I saw so, this. <laughs> yeah, so dad calls Target and he he tells them, you know, we've we've got a problem. You're sending my daughter. She's only a teenager. Uh, these things about buying baby stuff and car seats and he's like you're gonna put this in her head that she needs to have a baby and target's response was well she's probably already pregnant and what had happened is she she had through her behaviors of buying things had triggered this machine learning algorithm uh into identifying her as being pregnant and it was correct so 
Target knew before the dad did that the teenage daughter was pregnant. So this is like super creepy, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, if you if you buy pickle chips and Rocky Road ice cream, at the same time, <laughs> it's pretty obvious. I mean, you know, you really need machine learning to get that. <laughs> I would love it if those were the identifiers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, you know, there there's another scenario here as well and and that's um, you know, where where do we draw the line with our data collection and w- like, let's think about autonom- uh, anonymized data as well. So, uh, I think it was Yahoo a few years ago put out some anonymized data, and they're like, look, it's anonymized. You can't figure out who was searching these terms. Uh, so, a private investigator took up the challenge. And what he did is he, he went out and he found some of the people based on the search criteria, which they said couldn't be done. And uh, one of the, the oddities that stuck out was this um, search that kept coming up about killing your wife and how to cover up a murder and all this, you know, all this very dark stuff that, um, you know, this, this investigator was at first worried that somebody was actually going to act on this stuff and, like, kill their wife. So he goes and finds the person, and it turns out the guy was a writer for the, for the show CSI. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I, I knew something like that was coming. That, that's... Um, I have a friend that does uh, mystery novels, and, like, we've, we've joked about our search history, because when I was... Uh, we used to work together before I went to med school, and so we both had like really weird search histories from just me in school and her researching novels. They were like, "Yeah, <laughs> if somebody looked at our search history, they would they would wonder." So you you have this human condition where you're looking at you know a lot of data, and you, you have to have a line that you draw. Where does the benefit outweigh our need for privacy? Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to have you have to have it anonymized, but then, and in the same token, how good is anonymous data if a person can reverse engineer it? And if a person can do it in weeks, then could an AI or machine learning algorithm do the same thing in minutes or seconds? So you kind of have this this uh, catch twenty two or this you know loop that's uh, kind of self sustaining here, and, and it's it's really hard to weigh it out. Um, but there's really some cool benefits to all this stuff as well, because you can you can uh, record uh, health data and try to predict you know people people's illnesses. Uh, one of the things um, the company I work for, Progress, we bought a machine learning company uh, earlier this year. Is uh, they teamed up with uh, Jaguar, and they're running analytics against the engine data. And what they're looking for is anomalies in the data that might identify identify something going wrong with the engine. So it can be taken into a mechanic and, and examined further by a human being uh, to determine if there's there's actually something that could break down the line. So it's you know preventing you from being broken down by the side of the road by looking at the engine and saying, okay, something's out of spec here. So it's able to identify some things like that. So there is some benefit to this stuff. That's really cool. I mean, like, I mean, you, you got the, the check engine light that comes on and, you know, anyone that watches Big Bang Theory knows that the way to get around that is just to put a piece of tape over it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and it, it seems like at some point you may be able to have your car call and make an appointment with your mechanic for you. Oh, absolutely. Those days are here now. So, um, you know, these, these algorithms that I'm talking about that 
our, our company worked on is it will identify what normal behavior is. And mm-hmm. uh, instead of identifying the, the actual anomaly, anomalies or the, um, the actual problems themselves, uh, what we look at is the known good data. And if it's outside of that known good data, then it's a flag for something to, to be looked at. Uh, so we can ahead of time say, oh, something may break down uh, because some of these numbers aren't jiving with what's known as good data. And we can send an email to the owner and say, hey, you know, take this into the shop and set up an appointment and all that. And, you know, through things like bots, like you said, we can automate that process as well. Yeah. So this, this has me wondering, the third thing that you mentioned was mm-hmm. augmented reality. <laughs> and you're kind of talking about working on cars and things like that. And I'm wondering, you know, how that's going to, the augmented reality is going to affect the mechanics job. Or one thing that I thought was really interesting was um, when Google Glass came out, they, you know, you could submit uh, ideas to them for them to send you the, you know, a beta version or whatever. And uh, one thing that I submitted was for learning and teaching in medical school. And so, yeah. Um, so the, the reason, you know, I think these three technologies go together, you know, we have big data. Yeah, we have mm-hmm. our storage, right? And then we have machine learning and, and AI. Like the machine learning is, it's doing the processing, right? It's taking the data, it's doing uh, something with it, making some kind of intelligence out of it. Um, and now the only thing that's missing f- from this equation for me as a, a web developer is I look at this and I say, big, da- big data is our model uh, and machine learning is, is kind of like a controller. So all that's missing is a view, right? Model view controller. And I'm like, you know, if we're s- able to see these processes, you know, with vision, then that would be the ideal situation, right? You have this massive data collection, and then you have a brain to process it, a controller to process it, and then this augmented reality to visualize it. So we have model view controller, right, on a large scale. And there's a lot of really cool stuff that we can do when we start applying these things together. Like you're you're saying, there's a lot of potential for this stuff um, in the mechanical and engineering space, uh, in healthcare, and um, you know a lot of a lot of these technologies that are are used in augmented reality today, they kind of came out of that 1950s era as well. Uh, so, for example. Uh, in 1958, the world's first heads-up display was put in operational service, and I'm sure, like when when I came up with the, this model view controller scenario a few minutes ago, some people snickered. And, you know, <laughs> it, it, again, human condition, right? Let's judge uh, something that that's being talked about, uh, and that's fine. You know, we we do this all the time, and and good things come out of you know judging people's ideas. Uh, but in 1958, when somebody said, let's put a heads-up display on a, an aircraft and use it to uh, target other airplanes, it was almost laughed out of operation. But we all know how that turned out, right? I'm sure everybody that's that's uh, listening has seen the movie Top Gun or at least heard of it. So we all know that the heads-up display was uh, pretty much a hit after the 1950s. Mm-hmm. So uh, when am I going to get my holodeck? <laughs> so, 
there, there's actually some really cool stuff uh, that's in the pipeline now. So let's let's talk about like current AR technology. Like let's sure. let's rewind back just a couple couple years because it's this is really like an accelerated timeline here. Uh, we've had like some really simple stuff come out, and then it's just advanced like extremely quick. Um, so a couple years ago, uh, a few of us, I think there's maybe five of us, owned this device called a Windows phone, right? Yeah. One of the really cool apps on the Windows phone. I think it was the same five people that are on Google+. Plus. Yeah. (laughs) Possibly three of us are talking right now. I had one. I don't know about I think three of the five may be having conversation at this moment. I actually had a uh, pocket PC back in the day, which is even worse. (laughs) So, what what are the apps that came on the Nokia phone? Uh, Had this kind of like overlay thing where you'd hold the phone up and, and like look down the street and it would overlay like what businesses were in your view. And it would have these little black like pop up type things that would come up over the storefronts and tell you what they were and the star ratings and you know stuff like that that's cool it was really cool and i thought it was really awesome until i tried to use it and and figured out that there was a little bit of a flaw to it and that was sometimes you'd hold it up and the little pop-up things would cover the signage over the building you wouldn't be able to tell where it actually was uh, (laughs) until you put the phone down and actually looked for yourself and went oh i'm standing in front of it uh this stupid little thing's blocking the view but it was a really cool idea like it's taking you know gps data and it's overlaying it and then it's taking you know data from i, I would assume bing since it's uh, a microsoft thing and putting ratings up over the top of it as well and so really cool stuff and then you know that's that's kind of a human condition as well where we we come up with these cool ideas they don't quite pan out perfectly well i think another good example was uh, the google glass right for all intents and purposes you could consider it a failure or a success. I mean, it, it never did go commercial, uh, at least as far as I know. And, you know, it had success in the fact that it broke new ground, I think. Um, it kinda- I'll be honest. I was really excited about it because I thought it would be really cool to have that, that little heads-up display on a pair. Like, I wanted to put it on real glasses. I wear glasses when I'm not wearing contacts. Uh and have that little heads-up display so I could look up information while I was sitting talking to somebody. And mind you, I was in medical school when when it came out, so I was thinking, oh, this would be awesome to be able to, you know, talk about something, you know, and have it pop up the list of symptoms, and I could just scroll down and look at my notes on, oh, this is what the patient most likely has. Here's the the various treatments for it and all that stuff without having to pull out, uh, I actually had an iPad at that point in time, but without having to pull out my iPad or a book and look it up in the book. Yeah. I I think it was really a success in the fact that it it broke new ground into Mm -hmm. what computing devices could be in the future. And it gave us a glimpse into, you know, the fact that everything isn't a phone or a tablet or a PC, and there's going to be new ways to interact with data. And uh, it, it also pushed the human condition as well. Like I, I said very early on, like the glass hole thing. Like it was socially awkward, right? Having this thing on your face all the time that's constantly or potentially constantly recording video and audio and pictures uh, creeped a lot of people out. So it also kind of yeah. broke some ground there. Yeah. That's. That's where I was like, I, I wish they had done it more 
to look like a pair of glasses. I mean, if anything, you would have looked like a hipster for having, you know, the cosmetic glasses. But, yeah, it would have looked better than just this one little thing covering your eye. But, you know, the expectations have changed. I mean, 10, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you would have never seen people at the dinner table where the entire family was on their phones. And now that's pretty common like you you can't go to a restaurant where you don't see that so i mean yeah i, I think the needle gets moved yeah. over time that's absolutely yeah it's right. an interesting point because i think um one of the things i really enjoy about doing trivia with my friends is that we're not allowed to have our phones out so between questions we actually have to have a conversation People aren't just sitting there looking at their phones the whole time. Yeah. So so we kind of graduated from this, you know, lame, like, uh, Nokia phone, augmented reality, to uh, something like Google Glass. It was kind of outside the box. And then we, we also have uh, more device-based stuff uh, that's coming around now, uh, like AR Kit from Apple and AR Core from Google. And then there's the real, like, you know, cool device on the block, uh, and that is the HoloLens. Like, this is like the pinnacle piece of this type of technology. And that's, you know, coming back to your holodeck you're asking for. This is about as mm-hmm. close as we're going to get for a while, I think. But it's pretty damn close, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you guys have had a chance to try this thing out, but it, it's pretty amazing. Um, there, There's, again, haters out there that are going to hate, and uh, they're... they're they're talking about something that was so much um, a, an idea of science fiction just pretty much yesterday, uh, trying to throw heat on it and you know downplay it how phenomenal this thing is is, is kind of awkward to me. I, I don't I don't quite know why. So uh, my thought is anyone anyone that wants to hate on the Oculus Rift or the Hololens or anything like that. I want to let them play my old virtual boy (laughs) and be like, this is where we were when I was a kid. This is where we are when I'm an adult kid. Yeah. (laughs) So the HoloLens has uh, something on it that's, that's pretty amazing. And that is a custom piece of silicon that is a, um, an AI processor. So this, a uh, headset that you're wearing has a custom piece of uh, a custom processor that Microsoft created, and it processes all of the spatial data. And it's it's there because th- there was no way to do this through software efficiently. And it takes all the spatial data and crunches it through a machine learning program uh, to do the location-based stuff that it does. The, you know, the ability to take a hologram and place it on a table in front of you and have it sitting on the table and not uh, occluding through it and odd stuff like that uh, is thanks to this you know array of sensors that feeds this machine learning-based processor that they've created. I mean, that is a pretty amazing piece of engineering uh, to be hating on. So I think it's it's one of those uh, devices that's pretty groundbreaking, and, and this is the first glimpse of uh, what the future has to hold. And to not play down the HoloLens at all, there's some really cool stuff in um, in the device-based AR as well. So so Google has a really cool app uh, called Google Google Translate. Yeah, uh, I don't know if you guys have played with that as yes. at all, but yes, a lot. That's, 
another one of these that proves the the idea of uh, this model view contro controller scenario where you have this uh, big repository of data which is uh, language and um, you know signage and things like that and you're using machine learning to take uh, signage and translate it in real time and then using the augmented reality aspect of the application to take the signage and uh, overlay the translated version of that sign upon itself. So, for example, if you have a stop sign in another language and you pull out your phone and look at the stop sign through your phone, in real time it will erase the sign and then print back over it in your native language the word stop. So, I mean, that is just phenomenal. That's, that's science fiction yesterday. Uh, that's mm -hmm. reality today. That is really awesome, and I just think where where we are now is so amazing compared to like I remember being a kid watching Star Trek and having them bring these basically tablets uh, and Star Trek: The Next Generation, I should say, bringing these tablets to the officers to sign off on reports and to look at things, and thinking I want that. I want that really, really, that's just so cool. And you know what? Laying right beside my bed on the, the nightstand, I have a Kindle and I have an iPad mini. Yeah, like, I have the technology that I wanted as a kid. Another Star Trek technology that's coming true is uh, the tricorder. Mm -hmm. um, Google demoed something a couple weeks ago. Uh, and this, again, it's, it's in the augmented reality space, but I don't know if it fits the actual uh, technical definition because it's not visual, it's auditory. So what is a pair of headphones that can do real-time uh, speech translation? I mean, how bizarre is that? Like, that is wild. That's... I'd like to go back to like my like eighth grade Spanish teacher and go, see, I told you I didn't need this class. <laughs> <laughs> They're calling it babblefish. Just like drop it down your ear. <laughs> I mean, it's it's amazing that that we're able to do stuff like this. But you know, we see that stuff coming around today. And if you look at you know what was um, science fiction fifty years ago, and you know these ideas were there. We had the ideas where we knew that these things could potentially be created, but we just didn't have the technology. It needed to catch up. Now the technology is catching up, and it's it's been you know, 50, 60 years since these ideas have come about, and now we're seeing them on store shelves. Mm -hmm. So what does the next 60 years look like if you can abstract or extrapolate from, you know, 50s to today, then what will 50 years from today look like? And that's where things get really, really strange. You know, if you think about uh, the HoloLens, for example, this is the first generation of this device. What is generation 60 years from now going to look like? Uh, is it going to be part of your body? Is it going to be, you know, in a, in a pair of glasses? Will it be in a contact? Will it be implanted? In uh, what type of what type of uh, implications does that stuff bring? You know, there there's theories about the fourth dimension. Um, you know, one of those is that the fourth dimension is uh, the ability for three multiple three dimensional spaces to occupy the same space. Uh, so if you have these technologies that are are built into your vision, uh, you could potentially have a uh, virtual fourth dimension, where 
you know, you're in a 3D space with other people, but you're all occupying a different version of that space. Uh, so the three of us could be sitting together uh, at a conference, and one of us might be watching the you know, Super Bowl instead or something like that. Uh, and we're all experiencing something completely different, um, but we're all sharing the same space together. Sort of like, um, have you read Ready Player One? I have not. Oh, uh, you should definitely read the book before the movie comes out. I'm excited for the movie, but definitely read the book. It is phenomenal. But it's basically about the kind of augmented or actually virtual reality world and people go to school in virtual reality and so they they sit at home or in a classroom or something like that with a whole vr suit on and learn and then you know they have their their activities and stuff on these virtual reality worlds if you want to see a game that is very futuristic, um, find somebody with a HoloLens and try out this game called Fragments. So it's kind of like a CSI video game, and it will literally draw like somebody else's apartment over your own living room, like walls and floor, and characters, you know, end up in that space, and it's kind of this very seamless. Uh, blending of two different worlds together in the same space. It's really bizarre to see, and uh, it's actually something that exists today. It's really mind-blowing. Can I make it NCIS? Because I kind of got a thing for Abby. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's another thing, too. I mean, uh, that's another human condition that, that we probably need to address as well. Like, if we have all these, these things on our face, and we have this ability to kind of check out to a different reality, um, you know, we, we already have have this issue uh, where you know you you might be sitting at dinner with your your family or something and like um, like I think it was Will that said it you're you're all on your phones. If you have something that's even more transparent, you know, less obvious rather, uh, you know, you're all you're all sitting with glasses on. Who's to say I'm not paying attention to what everybody's doing and and I'm off on my own, you know, my own little virtual reality doing something else. Uh, even though we're all kind of trying to sit here and share dinner together, right? Uh, so that's kind of a, a human condition we have to deal with. Like, uh, how socially acceptable is it going to be to uh, have these devices on if they're they're not already part of us? And then, um, you know, how to how do you sit in in the in the bedroom at night when your wife's like, your mind already is like, get off of Twitter. You know, yeah. it's time to watch TV and. What if you have this thing on your face? I'm sure she wouldn't be too happy with me having like a Google Glass or a HoloLens strapped to my face while I'm, I'm in a room at night. <laughs> Just, it's kind of unsettling. I think the ultimate result is that the seam between us and the machines is getting thinner all the time. And we're having to learn how to deal with that because at at some point, you know, it's the machines are going to be interacting you know, yeah. in addition to just us. And it may not even be us. Like we'll have, you know, digital agents doing things for us. Like, uh, I, you know, I could foresee 50 years in the future that most of the advertising is written for bots because bots will be doing so, the shopping. Let, let's let's examine that a little bit further down the road. Like, uh, let's talk about that 50 years from now. Um, so right now we have like pre-programmed assistants like Siri and, and uh, Alexa and things like that. But 
right now we have this uh, concept that people talk about, like uploading your consciousness and things like that. But this, this is a concept that's coming out of a generation that hasn't had a lifetime of data collection, right? So take, for example, a, a child that's being born, you know, 10, 20 years from now. They're going to have data collected on them since conception, pretty much. And, you know, over their lifetime, you're going to collect everything about that person, their health statistics, every like and dislike they've ever had on social media, all of these things, you know, all these wearables that, that we have now, we're going to have even more of in the future. So we're collecting just limitless amounts of data on a person from cradle to grave, right? So this concept of having to upload your consciousness seems to me like um, this idea of thinking of tomorrow in today's context like who says we're going to have to upload our consciousness if it's if we're collecting so much data on ourselves do we do we really have to upload something uh to be able to simulate consciousness so today we have you know these pre-programmed things like Siri and whatnot um in the future we may have digital assistants that are just people's consciousness uh, kind of simulated from data collection. In theory, you could uh, use all of this data that you're collecting over a lifetime to power, uh, you know, a Twitter bot or any other type of bot that would have uh, a similar uh, sense of taste on things that you might like or dislike and, and reply in a similar manner that you might reply. It just depends on how good the data collection was and how good the uh, machine learning algorithm is. Yeah. So that's that's got its own creep factor to it. Um, and, you know, I've kind of mentioned this before, uh, like I've given this talk a few times, and the way people respond to that is always vastly different from one to the next. You know, people are kind of creeped out by the fact that we might be able to live on in this virtual simulation type of uh, scenario where uh, this bot is mimicking our behaviors. But then I, I got the response one time that this would have been a, a tremendous help for somebody that was dealing with a family member that had um, Alzheimer's disease. So they're like, they said, if we had the ability to to uh, store all of this data and then make rational decisions based on it, when this person was going through this Alzheimer's phase of their life, uh, it may have been able to help us get an idea of things that they may have wanted, you know, for dinner, uh, whether they would have liked to have, you know, gone certain places or seen certain shows or things like that. It could have made recommendations uh, to help uh, just kind of ease everybody through the process. I thought that, that was really interesting. That makes a lot of sense going back to what you know we've been talking about a lot here with the human condition. Uh, one thing I noticed, my grandmother had Alzheimer's, and uh, just sort of watching my mom and aunts and uncles deal with that and deal with her as she was going through that, it was basically their perception of what she would want. Mm -hmm. So it, it was what they thought she would want is what they were trying to provide her and they weren't always right and i think something like what you're talking about would have really helped them to understand what she really wanted and what she really liked because you know human condition things like that we go over to a family member's house and they cook us food it's not very good well i'm not going to be rude well i am but <laughs> You know, most of my family's not going to be rude and be like, I don't like this. Quick example, uh, 
My mom makes a dish that I absolutely love. It's a ritzy chicken casserole, if anyone wants to know. Uh, it's phenomenal. Went to visit my sister. She was trying to be, you know, hey, I'm going to make you your favorite dish. You're here <laughs> visiting me. It's really awesome. Well, Instead of using sour cream, she's like, I'm also going to be healthy because I know you're trying to lose weight and be healthy, and I'm going to use um, Greek yogurt. Yeah. No. <laughs> Not so much, huh? <laughs> uh-uh. And, you know, it was it was one of those things, like, if I had said, oh, hey, this is great, thank you, she'd continue making it because she wouldn't know I didn't like it. Or I could take the hit, she'd be mad at me for an hour, and just be like, hey, I really appreciate it, but it doesn't really taste as good with uh, with the Greek yogurt. I, I took the hit because I'm like, I don't want to have to suffer through this again. Um, wow. Her, her husband gave me a mean look. You know the <laughs> sister I'm talking about, Will. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, and she didn't get upset. She's like, you're right, it tastes like crap. She's like, that was a, a, an experiment, and it was a bad experiment. And I'm like, wait, what who are you and what did you do with my sister? Because I'm expecting this explosion and she, she handled it like really well. But still, it's one of those things where people trying not to hurt others' feelings can lead to false assumptions. Whereas if we had what you were talking about, when they're in a situation like that, and I guess it kind of hits close to home for me because of having family members that had Alzheimer's where it's like, yeah, I could, I could have seen that really saving a lot of stress and heartache for my family. Had we had that, you know, you, you probably shouldn't have flipped that casserole dish though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably not. Well, Hey, this is some really fascinating and a little bit scary, a little bit really cool kind of stuff. Um, Having been science fiction geeks our whole lives, we've seen some of the things that were only in the movies or only in TV become reality. And we're looking forward not only to what else will come to exist, but also what the future of science fiction holds. Ed, we really want to thank you for sharing this with us again. It means a lot to us that uh, you're willing to spend another hour or so talking to us about it. That's that's really awesome. We really want to thank you. Y'all can check out Ed's podcast, Eat Sleep Code, on this website, or uh, I'm assuming it's on a lot of the podcatchers, iTunes, stuff like that. Yeah, you can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Channel 9, or you can go to the website developer.telerk.com and click on podcast there. All right, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. How else can people get in touch with you? Uh, so I'm frequently on Twitter. You can find me at Ed Charbonneau by my name. It's difficult to spell, but <laughs> it's C-H-A-R-B-E-N-E-A-U. Uh, you can find uh, find me on there. Uh, you can find me at edcharbonneau.com and telerk.com as well. Uh, I do a lot of work for, for them because that's my employer, but uh, I do webinars and um, a lot of writing. Uh, so you'll find me at developer.telerk.com, writing a lot, um, and I'll, I'm just uh, about uh, going to conferences and talking to people in the community. Uh, so you may actually see me throughout the U.S. Uh, some some part of the year or another. Uh, I make some rounds quite frequently. So if you're in the Seattle area or through the uh, Ohio, Tennessee, Kentucky area, I'm in those areas a lot. 
Cool. Well, definitely, uh, guys, if you ever have the chance, go see Ed uh, Ed talk. Ed, if you're ever up in Cleveland, Ohio, let me know. I'll try to make a trip up there because that's where my sister lives, and they like me to visit. So um, I was going to say, can I try some of that casserole? <laughs> <laughs> there you go there you go um that pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out will what do you have for us this week for tricks of the trade well um i know a lot of people probably noticed i didn't talk too much during this episode and that's because i'm in a great deal of pain um my you know where i had the hernia incision it's just it's really hurting a lot and i'm nauseated and I, I want to stress the importance of planning for situations where you're not on point and you're not completely well. That's been something really important over the last week that I've I've found all the gaps in my planning. Uh, fortunately, with this uh, this podcast, you know, Beej and I had planned ahead just in case I was a little bit too sick and basically decided that I would try to be on um, but not talk too much if I was not doing well and so that's that's basically what I did and I just I want to encourage everybody out there to think about what happens when you're tired you're sick you're out of work that sort of thing and try to mitigate things before that happens um, just to make it easier on your coworkers and everybody else I, I think a lot of developers don't really do a good job of this I, I know plenty of them that um, when they get sick Somebody has to call them and ask for their password to get on their machine and ask where stuff is because they didn't plan ahead. Try not to do that. Try to be a grown-up. And that's all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Look for us each week on Facebook Live before we record each episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time.